0: Everybody's everybody persevering. So the Reverend Billy Graham tells of a time early in his ministry when he arrived to a small town to preach a sermon, share the gospel, have a crusade. And he wanted to mail a letter. So that was back in the days of snail mail. He asked a young boy where the post office was. And the boy told him, Dr. Graham thanked him and said, well, if you'll come down to the church on the corner this evening, you can hear me telling everyone how to get to heaven. The boy thought about it for a second and said, I don't think I'll be there. You don't even know your way to the post office. <laughs> we don't even know how to make sense of Zechariah. So, we're in the same boat. So, um, while the vision in chapter 3 pertained to Joshua, the gold lampstand and the two olive trees that Zechariah sees in chapter 4 are designed to encourage the rubbable. Well, who was he? We know from the genealogies of Jesus that he was the descendant of King David. He was the leader of the first group of returnees from Babylonian exile in the first year of Cyrus. And he was appointed by the Persian king to the office of governor of Judea. So on arriving in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel's great task was rebuilding of the temple. And things did get off to a pretty good start. The second month of the second year of their return, the foundation, had been laid, and with all the pomp and circumstance uh, that could be commanded, they celebrated that. And unfortunately, the efforts of the Samaritans were successful in putting a stop to the work during the seven remaining years of the reign of Cyrus, and then for eight more years, of the reigns of the next two rulers. So essentially the work stopped for 15 years. And instead of persevering and in, in rebuilding God's house, the Zerubbabel and the rest of the people had been busy building costly homes for themselves, according to what Haggai tells us. So clearly he and the people became discouraged and then sidetracked to the point of inactivity and really total disobedience to what God had commanded and someone needed to light a fire under them, and the Lord used Zachariah's vision to do just that. So in our text, the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who was awakened from his sleep. And what's true for Zachariah is certainly true for us. Unless God wakes us up and gives us eyes and ears and a heart to see and understand, we don't have a clue what's going on. And you may have felt that way when you read this text for the first time, like I did. Well, when he was awakened by the angel, Zechariah was faced with a strikingly beautiful vision, and he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see a lampstand, all of gold, with its bowl on top of it, its seven lamps on it, with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps, which are also on top of it, and two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left. Well, This is obviously a pretty wordy description, and is a bit confusing, but the first item that Zachariah mentions is the lampstand. So he didn't have any trouble identifying with it, so it must have been pretty similar to other lampstands he had seen. And you know, you probably in your commentaries read quite a bit of discussion about how this thing actually looked. Um, Most of us would be familiar with the lampstand that was described in Exodus, and you know, the menorah like Zachariah, we would all recognize that. Now, um, Debbie Thomas painted this, and I don't know if you can see this, I just brought to my attention, but you can look at this afterwards. This is, would have been what the Exodus one would have looked like. And this would have been the one that Zachariah looked like. So I'm gonna put this up here and anybody wants to see closer, but I thought that was a great job of illustrating that. We have we have an artist. So nice. Um, so let's see, where were we? Okay. So the, the lampstand that Zachariah saw had other features which would have been unfamiliar to him. And the first thing was that bowl above the lampstand that had the channels or pipes coming through it. That was designed to supply a steady supply of oil to the lamps. And, The Hebrew text actually suggests there were like 49 channels of oil, seven for each of the seven lamps. And then we've got these two olive trees on either side of the lampstand as well. But what is certain is that Zechariah was confronted by a brilliant and stunning scene centered on this marvelous lampstand of gold. And if we put ourselves in his place, we can just imagine the impression that it made. It conveyed majesty and beauty and splendor, priceless value, all in the form of light shining in the darkness. Well, what would he have thought as he looked on the spectacle? He was a priest, and he would have naturally thought back to the temple's lampstand. And part of the temple service, morning and night, was to enter the holy place, trim the wicks on the lamps, and replenish the oil. Now, this lampstand was different because it was automatically filled with an endless supply of oil without any human agency whatsoever. And then the bowl storing the oil above the lampstand brought the oil continuously through. So, um, and, and again, we have these olive trees that were tapped as well. So, and it's the olive trees that prompt Zachariah's question, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who was speaking with me and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Well, ladies, I have to tell you, I admire Zachariah's honesty. When he doesn't understand, he just asks a question, and he admits he just doesn't know. And he may have been expecting the angel to say, well, they represent this, and you are to do that. But instead of a direct explanation, the angel gives an oracle. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of Hosts. There is no reference to the vision itself in the next few verses, but by mentioning Zerubbabel by name, the connection of thought is that the two olive trees stand for the two leaders. Joshua had been given a special word in the previous vision, and now we hear a message for Zerubbabel. So the visions in chapter 3 and 4 clearly belong together and are designed to encourage the two leaders. Now, the words might and power, you may have found, are very similar in Hebrew. Temple building is going to be completed, but it's not going to be by might, accomplished by human prowess, or large numbers of workers. You know, Solomon had 150,000 to help him with the temple. Not going to happen here. Nor will it be by power or the human strength of the workers themselves. Because looked at from a human point of view, the manpower available was completely inadequate for the task. It will be accomplished by God's Spirit as the Lord of Hosts. It is only going to succeed because of the supernatural grace that the Lord will provide. If you think about it, morale must have been low. Many of the people experiencing hardship would have doubted God's power or his commitment to help them. The pressure on Zerubbabel would have been great because the failure to build the temple was in reality a symbol of spiritual failure. Losing hope or interest, many just fell into sin and decided to make the best of things by assimilating with the Gentile people around them. And such hopeless, bleak circumstances never stop God's spirit from bringing God's purposes to fruition. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. The mountains that Zerubbabel faced were many. The returnees had been stuck in fear, reluctance, inertia, and flat-out disobedience for many years. They'd quit, they'd given up, they'd lost their hope, and maybe even forgotten why they were there in the first place. All mountains, great and small, human obstructionists and difficulties are reduced to nothing by the Spirit of God. The foundation of the temple had been laid, and the promise to Zerubbabel is that the building will be finished. The top stone or capstone will be laid, and there will be a ceremony of rejoicing. Its completion is symbolic of victory by God's spirit, hence the exclamations of grace, grace to it. And just in case Zechariah didn't get it the first time, the message is put in plain terms. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, His hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The work will certainly be finished, and this will provide further vindication of the angel's authority. And that was exactly what would take place four years later in 516 B.C. This vision showed Zerubbabel that he did not lay the foundation in vain and that his present work would bear fruit because nothing done by faith is ever wasted in God's kingdom. This is such a picture of our lives as Christians. If you think about it, we start our walk of faith, when God calls us, out of a Babylonian captivity to sin. We come and answer to God's call with great promises ringing in our ears, and yet we live in what has been called the gap between promise and reality. The Bible tells us that in Christ we are royal children on whom the Lord of heaven has lavished his love and affection. Yet Paul says that our lives are hidden with Christ in God, and the realities that God declares to be true must be seen through eyes of faith. And our faith is weak, and it's imperfect. And we feel the same way that Zechariah and his people must have felt many times. And this is where the visions come in. They set before the eyes of faith manifestations of what is real but unseen, what is spiritually true, even though unapparent. In our outward circumstances and these visions told the prophet that God had not changed he was still the God of grace who was willing to forgive and restore God's grace is new in every circumstance because it is founded not on the circumstances themselves but on the changeless character of God and it is this great love and mercy from the Lord that generates everything we read in chapter 4 The vision of the lampstand told the Israelites that the temple would be rebuilt, that God's presence and power would dwell among them, and that their generation would know and have the light of God again. Well, the angel asks, for who has despised the day of small things? Well, who were these people who despised the day of small things? Well, they may have been older Jews who thought this temple was insignificant compared with Solomon's temple, and it wasn't worth the effort and sacrifice. They may have been people who wanted the temple to be built, but their faith was too small. They may have been people who looked at the enormity of the task and gave up, not knowing where to begin. Or they may have been people stuck in sin, not knowing how to start over again. Ladies, we all live in the day of small things. Small things like changing diapers, doing laundry, running errands, disciplining children, getting your Bible study done when you don't understand it, getting dinner on the table. Things that in and of themselves seem inconsequential to the kingdom of God. And these small things can turn into mountains very quickly. A short quote I read Ultimately, we are what we do every day. What defines us is not one large intention to be a good person or parent, it is a hundred thousand ongoing choices of every size that arise when we're tired, satisfied distracted, threatened, happy, sentimental, hurried, bored, etc. It's those little moments, those everyday choices and actions that ultimately determine who we really are. God is in the small things in a big way, and he custom designs our small things why? So that we will learn to trust him in the small things. He's glorified by our faith not by might or by power but my spirit says the lord and the message is clear start where you are and surely this is the point the angel makes as he continues but they will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of zerubbabel these are the eyes of the lord which range to and fro throughout the earth now a plumb line is a weighted cord and used to ensure the building of straight walls and the point is that when others see zerubbabel going about the work in faith they will rejoice and take heart themselves. And ladies, when other believers see you walking in faith, they will be encouraged to walk in faith as well. So God is saying to Zerubbabel and to us that small is great if God's eye is upon it. The seven eyes of God signify God's full attention and care. And the point is that God, who sees everything on the face of the earth, takes note of Zerubbabel's building project and that he delights in it. Okay, so though somehow understanding the vision came through the preceding oracles concerning Zerubbabel, Zachariah still had some questions. Then I said to him, well, we're back to these olive trees. What are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And I asked the second time and said to him, what are the olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? Zechariah specifically asked for an explanation of the two olive trees that he'd seen. And he also wanted to know the meaning of the two branches of these trees that emptied the oil into the golden pipes. And the angel responds as if the prophet should understand. Do you not know what they are? Zechariah responds, no, my lord. He said, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, the original Hebrew reads, these are the two sons of oil. Did you find that in your research? They were sons of oil or the oily ones. And in the (laughs) Old Testament, priests and kings were the ones who were anointed for their office. So it's pretty clear that these two anointed ones refer to Joshua and Zerubbabel. So on the basis of this symbolism, let's just think quickly about these offices. The priest served to represent sinful people before holy God. And in this case, we're going to think specifically of the high priest since Joshua held that office. And every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest entered the Lord's presence to offer sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the nation. So it was through the priest's work of offering sacrifices and making intercession that God's spirit came to the people and they experienced his presence. The other anointed office represented in this this vision is that of the king. The king ruled on God's behalf, governing his people, and establishing his his righteous reign or his his way of doing things on the earth. The people were to obey the king. The king was to obey God. And so this gives us the importance of Zerubbabel in the temple. Well, several hundred years later, we see these two offices coming together in Jesus. And Jesus is the true of oil because the word messiah or christ literally means anointed one he came as our high priest hebrews tells us he by one offering has perfected for all time those who are sanctified he's able to save forever those who draw near to god through him he always lives to make intercession for them and our high priest has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens but jesus is also our king And before he was even born, the angel Gabriel told Mary he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and his kingdom will have no end. Revelation tells us he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. So coming back to the vision, let me just sum up what we've learned. The great design of God's ministry is to send his spirit to empower his people and enable his purposes to be accomplished. And this happens through the channel of faith, just as the olive tree sent their oil through the pipes into the golden lampstand. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit was a temporary enablement for those living in Old Testament times. The Spirit came on people. He didn't reside in them. On this side of the cross, Those who trust Jesus' payment for their sins have the Holy Spirit residing in them. His presence isn't temporary. It's forever. And God has taken Zechariah 4, 6 and made it permanent in us, not by might or by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And the Holy Spirit's purpose is to enable us to be effective at the work God's called us to. He never runs out of power in the same way the lamps on the lampstand Zechariah saw would never run out of oil. So the visions and oracles in chapter 4 were designed to encourage Zechariah, the leaders, and the people. However, a major mistake that God's people can make is to think that if we're doing God's work, it buys us some indulgences against our sins. And rebuilding the temple was a great work, but it did not earn anyone a get out of jail card free in the sin department. So in chapter 5, two more visions provide a stern warning about the necessity to remove wickedness from the land. Then I lifted up my eyes again and looked. Behold, there was a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits. Its width is 10 cubits. A big, fine thing. I think of those airplanes on Clearwater Beach with those banners. That's what I picture. This one didn't need the airplane, though. Uh, normally, a scroll would be rolled up in its case and stacked in the archives for the use of the priests and the scribes. But it's pretty clear that the scroll represented the law or God's word. And this school was open and very large. It was so large that people could easily read it. So no one can plead ignorance because it was large enough for everyone to see. Well, then he said to me, the curse, this is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. Surely everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on one side, and everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. Pretty much gets everybody. Uh, The angel explained that the scroll represented the curses that God had decreed against the Israelites who stole from or wronged their neighbors, as well as everyone who swore falsely in the Lord's name. I will make it go forth, declares the Lord of hosts, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. And it will spend the night within that house and consume it with its timber and stones. The Lord then promised to cause his curse to seek out the guilty and to bring judgment on them. He personified the curse and pictured it going throughout the land, even into homes to seek out lawbreakers. So the privacy of your home was not going to give you any protection from the judgment that the Lord would send on those of his people who broke his law. The flying scroll shows us that sin will be discovered. In spite of the glorious promises of the future that had just been revealed in the previous visions, the Israelites needed to realize that sin would still bring inevitable divine punishment and discipline. They needed to remain pure so they could avoid the Lord's curses and enjoy his blessings. Now this reminds me of what Moses warned the people if they did not obey. Be sure of this. A man sins. will find him out. And boy are we seeing that truth in our culture today. This is a shocking and scary thought in today's world. Sin is not called sin. It's called dysfunction, personality disorder, being strong-willed, or short-tempered. I have to tell you, ladies, God does not excuse our bad behavior that we blame on PMS. He doesn't even call it PMS. He calls it SIM. like today's heat seeking missiles, this vision shows the scroll of the law honing in on every transgressor and transgression. And in the last words of Ecclesiastes, Solomon warns, For God will bring every act into judgment, everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. It's true. So, this sin seeking scroll, one commentator said, bearing God's law reminds us that what determines sin is God's revelation. We are not the ones who create moral reality, try though we might. We cannot revise moral truth by deciding for ourselves what is right and wrong. This scroll goes forth with God's law, not man's opinion. Its dimensions are not those of the latest polls, but of God's holy character. God alone determines what is right and wrong, and his standards are not based on our studies or trends or claims to progress, but on his holy character as revealed in his law. He has fixed the dimensions of sin and righteousness. He's revealed these to us, and they are as unchanging and unchangeable as he is. Not only is sin going to be called what it is and exposed, it's also going to be judged. First source says it will spend the night within the house and consume it with its timber and stones. What happens when God's law discovers sin? The answer is that God's curse is sent forth. God said in giving his law, see, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse, a blessing if you obey, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. Sin receives God's curse, and sin is cursed because God is holy. God hates sin, and he cannot ignore it. Another quote I I found that was really, really true. We have so sentimentalized the Lord that we do not believe he would curse anyone or any lifestyle. But the prophets know better. God demands obedience to his commandments, and he will settle for nothing less. Presented with less... He does indeed eat away at the structures of a disobedient life, like leprous mold, or an unseen moth, or a penetrating dry rod, our illnesses and anxieties, our distorted relationships and broken homes, our servitudes or the things that enslave us and our addictions, and murderous societies are symptomatic of his unseen but judging presence." End of quote. Paul reminds us that God dealt with sin at the cross. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Never in a million years could Zachariah have imagined that the perfect high priest and king would voluntarily take upon himself the curse we deserved, and he paid the price of his life. What a warning this is to us today. The writer of Hebrews warned us to not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Ladies, if there is something eating away at you, if there's some sin you're rationalizing, ignoring, hiding, just confess it, get it out, and experience the forgiveness Jesus gave his life for. Well, verses 5 through 11 move on to show the seventh vision as we wrap things up, which clearly forms one message with the one before it. So having been discovered and judged, sin has been pictured as a woman in a basket to be removed from the land. I have to say, I was totally baffled when I read this the first time. I had no clue what any of that was about. Then the angel who was speaking with me went out and said, "Um, lift up now your eyes and see what this is going forth. And I said, what is it? And he said, this is the ephah. Or the basket going forth. This is their iniquity in all the land, and this is a woman sitting inside the basket. Well, this was a, a the ephah was a common household measure with a capacity of about five gallons. It's obviously too small to contain a human being. So in this vision, this basket or ephah may have been enlarged, in the same way the scroll was. Uh, then he said, "This is wickedness," and he threw her down in the middle of the basket and cast the lead weight on its opening well wickedness is the antithesis of righteousness so this woman represents the sum total of israel's sins including civil ethical and religious evil but another thing one commentator said that this shows us is that evil has a face sin is not just something happening out there Sin is done by sinners, by people we pass in the street, by people we work with and live with, and sit beside in church. The sins of God's people placed in this basket were not just abstract societal woes. They were not the product of bad environments or poor education or poverty. They were the works of the people themselves. Every Israelite hearing of this vision should have seen his own face, on the woman in the basket and when you read these verses you should think then the cover of lead was raised and there in the basket sat someone who looked like me continues then I lifted up my eyes and looked and there two women were coming with the wind in their wings and they had wings like the wings of a stork and they lifted up the basket between the earth and the heavens I said to the angel who was speaking with me were they taking the basket and he said to me, to build a temple for her in the land of Shinar, and when it is prepared, she'll be set there on her own pedestal. Well, not only was wickedness powerless before the angel; it couldn't get out of the basket. Now, wickedness is being carried away by two women with wings like the wings of a stork. Now, this is a really interesting word study in Hebrew because the word for stork, hasida, um, means faithful one. And that comes from the same word hasid that is used to describe God's covenant faithfulness to us, his goodness to us, his mercy to us. And so this removal of wickedness, just like the removal of Joshua's filthy garments in chapter three was an act of free grace on the part of our covenant-keeping God. Beyond that, it was the wind or the ruah or God's spirit that was in their wings taking this wickedness away so the, the picture is very clear that this removal of wickedness was entirely God's doing and if you think about it evil people cannot remove evil from themselves it's only something a holy God can do so the basket is taken to Shinar which was the ancient name for the district where Babylon was located And from the earliest times Babylon opposed God's way, it was the most recent site of Judah's captivity, and there a house or temple is going to be built for it, and it's going to be worshipped as an idol. And Zechariah is painting the picture that this idol is powerlessness personified. It can't get out of the basket, it cannot stop itself from being carried away. So there's nothing in common between the worship of the true God and the idolatry of Babylon. Well, this completes the message of Zechariah 5, which shows us that sin will be discovered because of God's omniscience, it's going to be judged because of God's holiness, and it's going to be removed by God's almighty power. Um, And however impressive this whole thing must have been, it doesn't seem when we read it that this has happened yet. Sin has not been cast down, but seems to be even more prevalent in our world. Wickedness has not been placed in a basket and removed, and nor was it eradicated from Jerusalem in Zechariah's day. So how then are we to understand this vision's fulfillment? And I think the first thing it does is it informs us about God's principles. God's kingdom is incompatible with sin. Chapter 4 promised the completion of God's temple in Jerusalem, and now chapter 5 informs us that sin must therefore be dealt with. And I think in this respect, this vision pictures the purifications of God's people. Be holy, for I am holy, God says, both to Old Testament Israel and to New Testament followers of Christ. God will not dwell with sin. One or the other must depart. And if we are to be God's people, then we, like him, must be radically committed to the removal of sin in our lives in the pursuit of holiness. I think the second thing this vision tells us is that ultimately how things will be in the end. The removal of sin from God's world is the uniform prediction in scriptures. Revelation 21:27 describes the heavenly city. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who's, who are written in the Lamb's book of life. God's city in the end will be clean not only from sinners in sin, but even from the principle of sin, which God will utterly remove like the woman in the basket. So this means, think about it, that in the end, we must face God and deal with our sins. And if we have not dealt with sin before the day of judgment, we will be cast away from him into hell for eternal condemnation. And that is what the vision of the woman in the basket ultimately prefigures. Sinners cast away from heaven and into hell, desperately seeking to (coughs) escape. Well, how then is our sin removed before the day of judgment? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul writes, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So ladies, the question is, have you trusted Jesus for your salvation? And if you have, are you allowing the oil of his Holy Spirit to flow through your life? Are you regularly confessing your sin instead of hiding it or calling it something else? There is freedom at the cross, and there is great blessing in obedience. Father, I thank you for these visions, this study of Zechariah. that stretches us, and challenges us, and yet you always bring us back to the very basic things, the small things, the having faith, the obedience, the dealing with sin, as it, you pointed out in our lives. And I, I pray that we would take this message to heart. I pray that if there's a woman here who has not trusted you, that you would bring her to yourself. I pray that you would allow, that you would teach us how to allow the Holy Spirit to flow through our lives uh, and that you would be glorified through that. In Jesus' name, amen.